Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to I Don't Get It, the pop culture get off my lawn cast, wherein two early 40s curmudgeons stare down the prospect of their exceedingly rapidly impending entertainment irrelevance. Hello, I am your co-host. My name is Noah Tarno, and you might know me as the founder and senior quiz master of the big quiz thing, the Trivia Game Show Spectacular. And joining me from the other side of these United States, as always... I am the marvelous Mr. Bill Scurry, a slightly neurotic housewife from Manhattan who's trying to my hand okay. stand-up comedy. If only. And uh, as you might have gathered by now, uh, today's topic, we always look at something that's hot, that's happening, and try to make sense of it with our adult 43-year-old brain. So we're looking at a uh, one of the hottest TV shows of the moment, uh, found on Amazon Video. Previously, I think their only big hit show was uh, Transparent. But the last year, they've been riding high on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. 3M, as the kids call it. 3M, wow. Um, which is a comedy drama streaming television show it debuted in uh march of 2017 on amazon video it is created written directed by amy sherman paladino a um tv showrunner i believe best known for gilmore girls she was the mind behind gilmore girls she later after that she had a moderate hit with bunheads which i never watched and now she's doing the marvelous mrs Maisel, which is generally the story of miriam midge Maisel, who is a young pampered housewife in late 50s upper west side jewish new york city and in the pilot episode her husband who is um he's a good provider but he moonlights as a stand-up comedian. Uh, very abruptly, he bombs one night as a stand-up comic, so he decides to leave his wife. That's realistic. And Midge, of course, has this moment of crisis and tries her own hand at stand-up comedy. And the show explores how this 1950s... I guess she's not wealthy, but she's living a wealthy... I mean, look, it's post-Cold War. Every white person in America lived a wealthy life. and Not post-Cold War, post-World War II. And uh, so it kind of straddles the line between her pampered Jewish existence and her hanging out in the Greenwich Village coffeehouse comedy scene. She's taken under the wing of the booker at a club in the village who sees great potential in her. She becomes friends with Lenny Bruce, some a guy playing Lenny Bruce, actual Lenny Bruce. show became a big hit. The first season won five Emmys, two Golden Globes, uh, many think pieces in Vulture, AV Club, etc. And uh, season two uh, just debuted December 5th. Uh, one of the Emmys was won by the star of the show playing Midge Maisel is the, I will say, lovely Rachel Brosnahan, I believe best known as playing the troubled hooker on House of Cards. Uh, Susie, the booker at the Gaslight, is played by Alex Borstein, who I know as uh, Lois, the voice of Lois from Family Guy. Midge's dad is Tony Shalhoub, Monk, of course. Her father-in-law is uh, Todd. Hockney from The Usual Suspects, <laughs> Kevin Pollock. Yep. This is just my reference point with these actors. Wallace Shawn shows up. Gilbert Gottfried shows up. Uh, a bunch of other actors I'm not familiar with show up. Some good acting in this show. I'm not sure. This might be a little out of our purview, Bill, because I'm not sure how much this is a young people show, because I feel like a lot of people our age like it. But it's definitely hot for the moment. So we yep. decided to jump in, give it a shot. You stole it off the torrent sites. I stole my parents' Amazon Prime uh, membership to watch it. So here we are. Uh, how many? How many episodes have you watched? I watched two. I watched episodes one and two of the two. series. Yeah. All right. They're like 30 and you've watched two. Good enough. Uh, I, I watched five. I read some think pieces. So we are definitely behind in the arc of this show. Midge's arc, the character's arc. It deals with a lot of gender issues and we are both not female. So we, I'm sure we will be mansplaining a bit here. 
So disclaimer, I'm sure we will be assholes in this episode. So, uh, <laughs> Bill, let's start with you. Your two episodes. Uh, what do you think of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? I stand by the two episodes. That's all I needed to watch to, to form an okay. opinion. I understand. Here's the thing. I'm going to give this show a lot of praise in that there's a number of things, a whole host of things that this show does pretty masterfully. And I'm assuming it is the thumbprint of the creator. No matter who the writing staff is and how many people are involved in the creating of the show. I, I believe I believe her husband writes much of it as well. Yeah. Some, yeah, they're partners. Husband writes some. Yeah, yeah. It, that, that's their relationship. Like that goes back yeah. to Gilmore Girls. But um, I think Amy Sherman Palladino herself is the impresario who was really responsible yes. for a lot of it. I don't know what da- Daniel does a different job. Uh, he may be like a whip, like a, a showrunner. But I have a lot of praise for the show. At the same time, I didn't like it. But my praise is fairly uninhibited. In that the first few episodes of the show, this is why I felt like after two of them, and they're hour-long episodes, pretty goddamn close. I think they're 50, 50 minutes apiece. And uh, they kind of felt a little, a little overstuffed to me. But there is this movement of the camera in this, this master shot uh, reliance, which I actually like a lot. There is this real cool competency about the way she's running her actors, uh, especially in the first two episodes, where it doesn't rely on a lot of cuts. It allows the characters to move around. They're blocked very interestingly. This thing being a, uh, a throwback to the late 50s, there's a lot of stage there's a lot of stage uh, direction or or production design, I should say. So they're in these very mid-century modern design sets, bedrooms, offices, uh, theaters, things like that. So she, I think she wants to use the hell out of these things. They're almost like 360 degree uh, sets, which are perfect. You know, you spent the money on them, so why not use them? So the camera is a lot of, it's a lot of steady cam action where the camera moves around people a lot. And so the characters walk into a shot, out of a shot. It reminded me a lot of um, Sven Nyquist's cinematography on exteriors and a lot of the way Oh, out. of course. Well, he was Bergman's shooter for a lot of his yes, career. Yes, no, I, hey, look, Look, I've heard of him. I've heard of okay. him. I will say that. So. And I think that Amy Sherman Palladino is doing something different here where she is affecting more Woody Allen-esque type direction of her characters. Uh, not ever, ever having seen a single second of Gilmore, I can't compare to what that craft was like back then. But this is a different kind of animal. This certainly feels more like a cable show. It looks like a million bucks. It quite literally looks like it was shot on the Mad Men sets. It has the same, if it's the same time period, it's the same aesthetic, and it has that same commitment to fidelity in building those mid-century modern apartments. The costuming. And, you know, down on the street. I don't know if it's CGI or if they really have like a vehicle fleet budget, but all those cars, uh, the, you know, the yellow checker cabs and the cars with those big fins, it mm-hmm. is pretty airtight in that you don't see anything that breaks the uh, spell that you're seeing something beyond 1958. I just don't like the sensibility of it. There's something so cute and quirky about it. Everybody came, yeah. Everybody comes in and kind of has the same voice. You're either one of two different characters in this show. You're either one of the younger leads or you're one of the older leads. So Kevin Pollack was great. And Shalhoub is great too. But they are kind of hectoring from two different sides of the same coin. They got this very grouchy, old world type shtetl value where they're these sour old Jews who are railing against everything. Their wives are very nervous, nervous, you know, flibberty gibbet, fuss budget people who can't really keep their shit straight. And the younger generation, Miss Maisel and her husband, uh, Joel, Michael Zegan is the actor who plays. They have this very kind of typified rat-a-tat, you know, whip your head back and forth type repartee. And I mean, that's, that's her, that's Amy Sherman 
Carmen Palladino's thing. You know, her thing is like whip crack dialogue. Everybody speaks in, you know, comebacks and witty repartee and things that are filled with references. And everybody's got something to say really quickly. Nobody takes the time to compose their thoughts. They're ready to go. Um, that kind of thing doesn't really do it for me. It's there's not a lot of naturalism. That's a very affected performance yeah. that, you know, lacks the gravitas. Characters come in, they say what they say, and they kind of walk out. And there's no air. Nobody has a chance to breathe. Nobody's nobody's pondering to consider their thoughts. Even her meltdown on stage is just completely contrived. It's like a wish fulfillment of what you think the, you know, the best version of your husband leaving you and you getting up on stage to grouse about it would possibly be. I know people aren't tuning in this thing for reality. They're not. Just like people kind of didn't tune into Mad Men for reality. They looked, you know, for some sort of weird prism to see the current day in. I'm filled with a lot of praise and awe for the craft in which it's made, but also I recognize that this is clearly not a product for me. I guess I largely agree. It's a very pretty show. Uh, I I don't know, you know, not being a filmmaker like you, I don't tend to notice film technique as much as you do. But I actually did notice some of the, the camera work you're talking about and, and the design, you know, a lot of the appeal of, uh, it, we keep bringing up Mad Men, which is a, in some ways a facile comparison, but an inevitable one. And most of the think pieces about it mention Mad Men because it's a period piece. Uh, I'll get to what I think the major differences are. But like Mad Men, I think it's sort of like, I don't want to say nostalgia porn because most people who love it weren't alive then. But like you're voyeuristic on this era where things seemed more glamorous or at least more interesting from a modern viewpoint. So the show is very pretty very nicely styled the art direction's great i actually wonder sometimes like when they're out in public i'm like oh it looks the outside of the village vanguard looks exactly the same washington square park looks exactly the same other than the costumes the clothes people are wearing you know it's possible they really did look that way when we actually see photographs they're faded or in black and white or something so we think they didn't look the same but right. so the show is very pretty and very nicely done also if we're talking about art direction or like production design i will add slightly off topic uh, i think the music is fantastic some great musical choices I mentioned before that the, the closing credits, the song accompanying the first three episodes, three amazing songs. You have Dave Edmonds, David Bowie, and uh, XTC. So I love it. And they keep playing Blossom Deary, who's a very interesting jazz singer of the 50s and 60s. Some good Frank Sinatra. So there's some amazing production design in this. I saw Gilmore Girls a few times and I did not like it. Gilmore Girls struck me as little like, the term I kept applying to it was arch. It felt, you know, you said quirky. And I, I guess Arch is very similar in that, like, just this forced kind of playfulness. Yeah, and that's exactly as, what it is, yeah. And, and that's what I'm feeling from this. And as a result, I don't like any of these characters. Uh, Mitch is okay. Uh, Mitch is okay. I don't like anyone else. A couple minor characters. Vinny Delpino. Did you get to that? Vinny Delpino from Doogie Howser shows up as her lawyer. I, I like him. I hope he comes back. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to keep watching. Some minor characters I like, but my God, Alex Borstein's character is unbearable. You know, it's one of these things like, oh, she's obnoxious because she's quirky. No, she's obnoxious because she's a fucking asshole. Her parents are so shallow and, and terrible. Her in-laws are terrible. Her husband is terrible, but in a way that I don't find very interesting. Like, yeah. he leaves his wife because he bombs one night in stand-up? Talk about thin skinned. My God. Although they get to that a couple episodes later when Midge starts bombing. And that that actually felt more true to life. Having done comedy for three years and having bombed 80% of the time, that felt very true to life to me, at least compared to most of the show. So I don't like any of these people. I think some of the characters, first episode especially, like, oh, we got the rabbi for Yom Kippur breakfast, and oh, the baby's head is too big. I mean, this comes 
at it from a Jewish point of view, and I don't like being the guy like, oh, anytime you criticize a Jew, it's anti-Semitism. I, I don't believe that, but like, and I'm not, this isn't anti-Semitic, but like, it feels like you're calling Jews assholes or idiots. Plenty of Jews are, but like, it made me uncomfortable. It really well, they're, they, I mean, she's Jewish, though. Do you, does that not live in that opinion a little bit, or you think well, she's just having too much liberty? I think they're self-loathing Jews are one of our biggest problems. I right, mean, right. yeah, Nazis are a problem, but Nazis don't know us. So, like, in some ways, I'm bothered more about <laughs> that, right? And then I, I feel like the show feels very artificial. Both uh, the dialogue seems very stagey to me, very much like you would expect to find it in a stage play and not in a TV mm-hmm. show. I guess that's some of the archness, but it feels very artificial. I've only seen five episodes. And when we got to that moment where Midge starts bombing, it felt a little more true to life. But like its whole view of show business and stand up felt very artificial to me. And you know, again, I, I dip my toe in stand up. And again, I dip my toe in late 90s, early 2000s stand up, not 1950s stand up. But it just feels very like not the way things are. And then we get to the Mad Men comparison. There's a lot of gender commentary, you know, being a woman in that time, you feel bottled up. You're a housewife. You don't work. There's still like help taking care of your children. And, and you know, that led to the feminine mystique and all that. And like the gender commentary feels really ham handed and very shallow. And it, if you're going to compare it to Mad Men, Mad Men felt much more deep, much more cutting, much more insightful. And this feels really like, nice dress, Mrs. Bob. You got a job? Like, they're banging you on the head with the idea that this woman isn't given a lot of options. And when she seeks to exert any kind of autonomy and any kind of self-expression and crossing the line from where a good housewife is supposed to be, that she gets smacked down in a very patronizing and often very angry way. Mad Men felt a lot smarter about this. This just feels, like, stupid in its gender commentary so i guess i'll agree with you there's there is some stuff to praise about this there is some dialogue i like there are some moments of clarity uh in terms of the gender commentary i love it i love it when tony shalhoub who pays her father just hands her like a 50 dollar bill and she says what this what's this for and he goes i don't know because yeah tony that, that was, i like that yeah Right. Well, he, Tony he, Shal- he, threw, he threw that line reading away every time. He's really good at that. Yeah, Tony Shalhoub's a great actor. Rachel Brosnahan's a great actor. A lot of good actors on this show. Uh, uh, Amy Sherman Palladino has some skills. I'll give her that. But it doesn't cohere. And I, I don't... I don't like it very much. And I'm five episodes in, and you know, I want to see where it goes. So I might watch again. But look at me. I am the same size now that I was at my wedding. And come on, who wouldn't want to come home to this every night? Ignore this, ignore this. But imagine coming home to these every night. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty good, right? Plus, they're standing up on their own. So Noah, tell me, why is the marvelous, fantabulous, uh, miraculous Miss Maisel popular at this exact moment? By the way, I, when I kept hearing about the show, but I didn't know anything about it, I, for some reason, I conflated it with, like, I know this is all Mr. Mag- Mr. Magorium's Wonder. What was that <laughs> what? movie? 
It was Heath Ledger, right? Yeah. No, no, no. It was, it was Dustin Hoffman and uh, Natalie Portman. Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium. Was it? It wasn't Heath Ledger. Why no, do you think it was no. like his last? He was. He was movie? in. He was in like the Helicanassus of Doctor Parnassus or something like that. Right. Okay. Different. Anyway, yeah. whatever. Regardless, I conflated it with shows like that, so I assumed it was some kind of like Fantasia kind of thing, some kind of magical, like mystical show. So Mary Poppins character, sure. Yeah, it was Mary Poppins. Right. I pictured Mrs. Maisel as a Mary Poppins character. It's 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 the nostalgia porn. I agree it's not literally nostalgic because most of the people who watch it weren't alive that era. But for lack of a better term, nostalgia porn. Looking back, it's beautiful. It's pretty. Blah, blah, blah. It's New York in the 60s. Everything was glamorous. Everyone was a spy. And, you know, I didn't like Gilmore Girls, but I know some very smart people, a lot of very smart women who loved it. ASP clearly has an aesthetic that, I, I said it's like Wes Anderson. It's an aesthetic that I really don't like, but I respect it. It's got some artistry behind it. It's got some craft. It doesn't hit me on a gut level, but I guess I get why it hits other people on a gut level, even though I I don't it, I don't cotton to it. The gender commentary might be awkward, but it's still potent, I guess, especially if you're a woman. You know, there's on some level we're never going to fully relate to that. So we need to make allowances for that, you and me. And it's fun. I mean, like I say, I don't love it, but I'm five episodes in and I kind of want to see where it goes. So I can think of worse things to do than watch more of it. Maybe for me, having tried stand up and you, you know, you're your, your wife was a stand-up for many years, so you're more plugged into that world than most people. Like, maybe this world is more novel than most people than it is for me. And they're more intrigued. Like, well, what's it like to try being a stand-up? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm less curious about that. I'm happy to have left it behind. But I guess I can understand why a lot of people find that really novel and fascinating. Sure. Especially when it's a, a pampered housewife from the late 50s. So it's got a lot of sticky elements. So... I guess I see why it's popular. I wish it were better. My opinion doesn't 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 really count for much in the marketplace in this example. Well, I, I think that it would, it's ninety eight percent the Amy Sherman Palladino effect, where it is something that people like. I, I have to agree with you that nearly one hundred percent of the smart, brilliant, intelligent women I know have watched that show and loved it. Did your wife? Like a no, no, that's the ninety-eight percent of them. Genesis and she the two percent. She's the two percent. Okay. Yeah, it had nothing to do with her. Okay. But um, right. this, this, her aesthetic. She is like Elvis for a lot of people, and the yeah. kind of goodwill that she garnered with with the uh, Gilmore Girls. You know, it's gold standard, and it'll stick with her for life. And people, she has a brand that's great. Right. There are there are very few creators like Amy Sherman Palladino. You know, she came up in the trenches. She was she wrote on Roseanne, and then in the in the late eighties, early nineties, she did a lot of hack work and. TV, and then managed to become one of these. Uh, there aren't too many female showrunners who have a brand of their own. Right. She's one of just a very few, uh, especially doing the kind Chandra, of work. Chandra Rhymes. Chandra Rhymes. Uh, the woman yeah. King. The, it was a husband and wife team who did the Good Wife, and they do the Good Fight oh, right, now. Right. The sure. King, the Kings. Uh, but that's still it's a partnership. There's a few of those in there. So I think that you, this show owes a lot to the fact that she's capitalizing on that brand. You, you're tuning in. Mm-hmm. It's like listening to Aaron Sorkin, who similarly people either you love him or you hate him. But if you love him, you right. just you just want that sound. You yeah. want that. Nobody in the West Wing ever thinks about anything. They just say it. Yeah. They they have it on the tip of their tongue. And they say she, they say powerful things, and then they leave the room. I, yeah. I always like, everything, can I make my life more like that? Everything is quick and everything, there's no dead air nothing hangs. And like I just said before, those, th- I mean, you know, that's one of the reasons why I didn't like it, but I think it's very much why it has this uh, appeal that people want it. Now, it is obviously heavily inspired, uh, it's got a debt of gratitude to Joan Rivers. I think that she wanted to really? capitalize on this. 
Yeah, that was Joan Rivers' that's, story. Uh, she no, was, that's 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 interesting. I didn't that didn't occur to me, but I like that. Okay, that's that's very. Perceptible. I mean, it's it's a it's a pastiche of Joan Rivers and right. uh, uh, um, Phyllis Diller and a lot of the other female comedians yeah. of that age, yeah. who were the very few of them were playing. They were playing a man's game, uh, yeah. so they had to kind of punch with their elbows and and get in there with the big boys. I don't know how accurate this is to Joan Rivers' story in particular, but I know Joan Rivers. She was getting up at those same clubs. That's not a mistake that she picked the, that that. She Amy Sherman Palladino picked those clubs because that's where Joan Rivers began her ascent. She she was on TV by the mid to late 60s based on the work that she did at this point in her career in the late 50s. So in that respect, what you have is a little bit of wish fulfillment and even something of a, a revisionist mid-century tale. In spite of the fact that this kind of thing actually did happen, so this isn't like you're inventing a comedian of whole cloth who's rubbing elbows with Lenny Bruce because Joan Rivers actually did those things. Mm-hmm. It seems like you're getting a chance to replay the 50s and the early 60s a little quantum leap style. And maybe if you're going to take a piss on the old school uh, misogynist mores and and values of that era, you want a extremely capable and plucky heroine to be the person who's doing that, who's stick, you know, who's, who's poking the beast with a short stick to make it angry and winning one for the girls before women's lib kind of takes over in a few years after this. I mean, I was going to say this is not really appropriate for why is it popular, but I don't I didn't, for a comedy, I didn't think this was funny at all. I almost felt yeah, like Yeah, it's 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 there aren't a lot of jokes in it. The jokes can fall flat for me, most of them. Right, well, her stand-up wasn't so much based on comedy, it was based on this, like, monology, where she was yeah. just going up on stage and storytelling a little bit. It's like, okay, yeah. this isn't really jokes, and she's not really good at it. And people and, people laugh at nothing. I feel yeah. like, there were moments I'm like, whoever wrote this scene has never been to a stand-up club. Yeah, that's true. It's like, anytime you, if you have a painter on screen or a singer or an artist, it's like, and you see what someone brilliant is doing, the work they give you has to be brilliant for you to buy it inside the economy of the show and I don't buy it in the economy of the show unless of course this world is just filled with shitty comedians and what her, <laughs> act, her act her act somehow is considered good comedy and there are no because yeah. you know you, I haven't seen any other good comedians they are all bums you know what you didn't mention is that her husband was bombing by recycling Bob Newhart yes. material yeah he was doing you know, a, which, a bit from a Bob Newhart album right which I'm sure people did but it's like you didn't see any other comedy besides shitty comedy in the show so it's like there was no real you know, there's no hump to overcome. Well, you her... see, you see Lenny Bruce. That bit they show Lenny Bruce at the Village Vanguard doing a very famous Lenny Bruce bit where he talks about everyone's either Jewish or Goisha. What are you doing? I have to go. I have to leave you. I have to leave you. That's my suitcase. It is. You're gonna leave me with my suitcase, Joel? Tomorrow's Yom Kippur. I'm, I'm, I'm not happy. Nobody's happy. It's Yom Kippur. I don't know how to do this. I'm not good at things like this. He's like, what? Like, leaving me? Yes. So don't. Practice a little. Try it again when you feel more confident about the moves. Midge. Joel, the rabbi is coming. Yeah, I know he is. Five years we've been trying to get the rabbi, and this year we got him. We got the rabbi. I should go. At a different point in your life, would this have hit you on a different level and perhaps appealed to you more? No, I think if anything, it would be less appealing, just because I would look at the trappings and said, I don't want to watch something set in the 60s. Like, that time period doesn't hold any kind of uh, cultural meaning for me. It's between epochs that have some significance. It's after the war and it's before the late 60s and the early 70s. And it's this sort of culturally insignificant groove that it's trying to essay where I don't have any sort of affinity for. The aesthetic, uh, the TV aesthetic of that rat-a-tat stuff, I don't think would really thrill me a whole lot. I don't think I'd need mm. to hear more of it. So I can almost see being less interested just because now I'm more of an omnivorous culture eater. And I think I know, having again, having digested Mad Men, 
which was not a show I would have watched as a kid either, just because I would have thought of it, oh, this is a gray show about men in suits. I would not have seen the value of Mad Men because it was designed for an older audience than I was as a kid. Uh, well, I actually think I would have liked this a lot more in my 20s when I was attempting stand-up. I would have found it inspiring. I remember early in my stand-up career, I got a biography of Andy Kaufman. I went through a period where I really, I idolized Andy Kaufman. I mean, I think if, Bill, you certainly remember, and some of the people out there listening certainly remember that by the end of my stand-up career, I was exclusively doing a character and I was doing this very kind of Dadaist, avant-garde kind of thing. You know, the, the honest feedback I got was that, apart from the fact that I just don't think I was that good, I think it had limited appeal. I think there's something I could have done with it, but I would have had to have a different level of dedication. Andy Kaufman, and I related to him on that level. And I was, he was doing, I mean, I wasn't, I don't know how much Andy Kaufman was playing a character. It was just a weirdo. But my point is I would have found this inspiring, you know, seeing her go to clubs in the same places I was going to clubs and, and struggling the same way I was struggling. You know, I mean, obviously she seems to have a bit more of a charmed stand-up existence than I had, but it was, it was a different, it was a different world in those days for stand-up, even for women. And she she hit the jackpot by being taken under the wing of someone in the scene. And look, she's flat out probably better than I was ever, ever was. So there's that. So I would have found it inspiring and I probably would have watched it as kind of like motivation in a way. Um, wow. Uh, thank you guys so much. Um, hi. <laughs> um, uh, okay, um, thank you to our brilliant writers and creators, Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino. I'll be thanking you for the rest of my life for trusting me with your midge. Um, thank you to all of our producers, to our team at Amazon, to, to Jeff and Jen and Mark and Ken and Albert and Donna. And thank you to our incredible cast and our cast, 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 and our earth-shatteringly talented crew. This is insane. So Noah Tarno, the fabulous Mr. Tarno, is this show a sign of the apocalypse? No, because even if I criticize all its flaws. Oh, by the way, big flaw I didn't bring up. The dialogue is incredibly anachronistic. Yeah, no I started, shit. Ma- I started making on. a list. I started making a list of idioms they use that maybe I'm wrong, but I'm so like. You got this? No one said that in 1958. No, you got to let that go. You got to let that go. I mean, come on. Oh, here's a big one. (laughs) Nerd alerts. Nerd alerts? You think anyone said nerd alerts? And oh, man. First of all, I don't even know if nerd was a word in 1958. So, when, so they, when did that when did that Dr. Seuss book come out that coined the term nerd? I think it was like probably mid, the mid-50s. Anyway, it just that it takes me right out of it. So that's and it. Th- it th- this is a sign of the apocalypse, right? I guess we just no, g- cut to the it's, chase. It's not because I guess the reason I bring it up now, not only because I wanted to get it in there, how annoying I find that, but like for say every TV show that isn't very good is a sign of the apocalypse, then, you know, the apocalypse is many decades late, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, this isn't a sign of the apocalypse. I mean, do you see that in any I, respect at all? No, I think it's a corrective. I mean, I, I think the show right, is... Well, that's nice. Yeah, I think this is not a bad show. I think it's a good show. I just don't like it. It's it's not a good show to me, but it's clearly a good show. There's a difference between a piece of shit like Two and a Half Men or um, like a comedy I really loathe. Like, what was it? Uh, Two Broke Girls was quite literally execrable. It was terrible. It was a terrible TV show. And there I watched drunk- that show once. I watched that show once. I don't understand what language they're speaking. One I of the wa- characters, she always talks like this. And I'm like, who talks like this? What? Who are you acting as? Yeah, right. Who are you who portraying are you- here? It drove me up the fucking wall. 
Anyway, continue. So you'd say, can the world withstand a bad TV show? No, but it can withstand a good one. And this is definitely a good one. This is, believe it or not, I I guess it's a zeitgeisty show. The irony being that, at least in the beginning, it was set in 1958, I guess. But it does wind up being zeitgeisty because it's, you know, won a huge bunch of awards. Rachel, Rachel Brosnahan won the actress for the best uh, comedic performance, I guess, at the Emmys in 2017, which is a big deal for her. Um, maybe it was this year's Oscar. Maybe it was 2018 uh, uh, Emmys. Either way, I mean, it goes back to my point about there not being a lot of female branded showrunners who have the license to take their shingle and become an industry. Now, at this point, ASP is definitely an industry, which is great. Why is there only one of her? We just haven't. I mean, Whitney Cummings, speaking of Two Broke Girls, Whitney Cummings had sold a bunch of shows all at once. She sold Two Broke Girls, and she had Whitney, the, 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 the eponymous sitcom, too, that didn't last very long. And it looked like she might still be on her way to becoming a, a micro-industry of somebody who's able to sell shows based on a tone. I mean, Amy Sherman Palladino is different. She's not just a, a scriptwriter. She's also a director. She's a filmmaker. You can tell there's a real aesthetic to what she does. It's You said the word holistic before. It's top-down. There is a complete vision to everything she does. And that is more often than not what women are kept away from. Or if not kept away from, they're not given the same opportunities that a lot of mediocre male creators have. Especially with the fact is that there's so much room. You know, Amazon is a nice plush place to put a uh, prestige show. It does have something, like, you know, you, you mentioned Transparent, another show where that was doing all the things creatively right. Uh, but Jill Soloway ran that show with a mostly trans or a greatly trans crew, which is another big deal, that she got to make the call of shots on what kind of production she built. And Amazon gave her the license to do it. And, you know, she had a fair amount of success. That was a great show that that unfortunately ran its course. They canceled it, I guess, because of the whole Jeffrey Tambor thing. This is the sort of thing there should be more of. And it's kind of a goddamn shame that in 2018, there's still so little of it. What are you hearing from women, fans of the show, about your character? It's been amazing to hear how many different ways people connect to it, but the biggest thing I'm hearing is that people are feeling empowered, that people are feeling inspired to take risks, to try something new, to find out how they might use their voices. There's been a handful of young women who have said that they, they've tried their hand at stand-up comedy for the first mm. time mm-hmm. after watching the My show. My sister did. Is, what? That's after amazing. watching the show, really? She loves the show. Is there any element, I mean, you clearly have misgivings with the show, is there any element of jealousy? in your feelings about it? Uh, I think that there is probably a little bit, certainly because Amy Sherman Palladino does something craft-wise that I don't respond to and has had a fair amount of success doing it. Now, no one's going to say that she's a a crappy TV creator or a bad director or anything like that. I'm literally just saying aesthetically it doesn't doesn't float my boat. And yet she's doing all these things with a big sandbox and a nice decent budget. And, you know, she's pushing the envelope creatively with what with what she was doing in the show in the first few episodes that I watched and that is a freedom as a filmmaker that I would love to have have had at some point in my career granted they didn't just give it to her because she showed up she earned it she she you know she put asses in seats for years and she was a reliable earner hopefully you create something like Gilmore Girls and that punches your ticket for a good couple of projects to come. It means that you're somebody who you can rely on and that money's not going to be wasted. That's a big deal. So I may be jealous, but it's certainly, I don't think she cut the line or is not getting anything that doesn't, that's not due to her. It's just that I kind of wish that we got the chance to tell these same stories too. I mean, but look what I'm saying, like a white male creator is saying like, yeah, I, I wish I had the chance to get on TV. Yeah, and but sell you're a show. not. 
But come on, Bill, you're not every white male guy. You wanted to do this. You know, you were willing to work for it and it didn't happen. So it's only natural that you're jealous. That's probably yeah. a, a more concise way to put it. than I mean, you're not thing. you're not saying you got screwed. You're not saying it was an unfair process that put her over you. You're just saying you wanted it. You didn't get it. So you're disappointed. Jealousy yeah. is a very natural human. Fair emotion. enough. I think I think that's an exact description. All right. How about, how about you? Uh, yeah. Well, I'm jealous of. The stand-up stuff that, you know, her first night on stage, someone's willing to work their ass off for her success. And that she seems to have a facility for it that I never quite had. And yeah, I'm jealous of that. I mean, that's not a show. It's the character. And again, I've said it's hard to take this character completely seriously because it seems a little unrealistic to me. I mean, you say I should just let it go. It's a Fantasia. But I'm sorry. I just... I'm taken out when I hear people say nerd alert in 1958. Um... <laughs> That's the kind of nitpicker I am, my friend. My initials are NIT. What can I tell you? Yeah, so I'm jealous of that. Like when I hear stories about people who get something that I wanted and I didn't get, I get jealous. So I'm jealous. Also, I think this is kind of a view into an era where it was an easier life for white people. Oh, yeah, definitely. Such a tough life for white people now. No, but it was, a. you know, I mean, look, post-World War II, America Even if you were Jewish, as long as you were white, you were living a standard of living that was like previously in human history only, you know, only enjoyed by kings and like rajas. Yeah. Right. I mean, the fact that this her husband's not working some insanely powerful job and her dad's a Columbia professor and they're not they don't come from they're not Rothschilds. And like she can afford not to work and just go work out every day and. And they have help taking care of the kids. I mean, the life these people live. And, I, and yes, it was empty. Like, I'm not jealous of women like this. You know, there's, again, the feminine mystique. But, like, the the, the life that people lived from the 50s to the 80s was just... And this, and, and, and we're in the hangover of that now. So, I don't know. It's nostalgia. Who, who knows what realism there is to that. But, you know, there's a sense of, like, life was better on so many levels in those days. I think that's why, that's one thing this has in common with Mad Men. Well, I think that carries us to a close. Uh, carries us to a close. So wait, wait, no, we got to ask on the, on the Felonian scale. Yes. Uh, we, we still got to work out what the parameters of this are. But right. I guess, is, the, is Jimmy Fallon's the worst thing in the universe? Yeah, yeah. So maybe we should say like what percentage of Fallon is the marvelous Mrs. Mason? Is that what uh, we should say? No, I I still think it should be it should be like it's the tick marks in between Jimmy Fallon on one end and say something like a key and peel on the other end have to be people persona in the middle. I don't think that I think percentages I is, is too straightforward. It's not okay. it's not conceptual enough for me. So okay. I would I would give this on a scale of uh, Keegan Michael Key and Jimmy Fallon. I'll probably put this at like a. Um, a Troy Sivan, you know, the good Troy thing Sivan. that's just just not made for me, but there's just it's it's well done and it gets the mm. job done, but it's just made for a complete a completely different audience. So somewhere that's figure out where out in the spectrum that is. You do the math on that one. There's no math there. Um, I actually think this is a little better than <laughs> Troy Sivan, but okay. I agree with you. You know, a decent thing that's not for me. Although I'm just gonna say decent. I think it's got some fundamental problems, even putting mm-hmm. aside that it's not for me. So I I would say this is slightly ahead of Trace of On and maybe below uh This Is Us. So I think that does it for us, Bill. I think that's hey. uh, uh will you so are you ever gonna watch this again? I will never touch it again. It's it's dead to me. No it's, it's gone. And your and your wife does not watch this either. She's not No, in this no, either. no. She oh. watches RuPaul's Drag Race and that's it. That's all she's got. That's yeah. literally the only TV she watches. She watches it end to end over and over again, like a raffy tape in a four-year-old's VCR. That's all she does. 
It's a chilling vision of the future. So <laughs> if you would like to find past episodes, look on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, tweet at Noah and Bill Show. Write Noah and Bill Don't Get It at gmail.com. Surf. Log on to Surf. I don't, I don't get a podcast. Go to, go to American Online keyword. I don't get it. <laughs> Pick up your mouse and say modem connect. Go to Prodigy. Uh, I am on Twitter at William Scurry, and I'm on YouTube at AM Caesar. Noah Tarno, where are you? Uh, BigQuizThing.com. I am relaxing this week because we had our busiest holiday party season ever. Custom private and corporate trivia holiday parties and trivia parties of any kind nationwide uh 2019 already shaping up to be even bigger than 18 so you know i had a good year business-wise i ain't complaining about that um so learn more bigquisting.com we're on twitter bigquisting we're on facebook bigquisting instagram and uh, i'm uh on twitter at noah tarno my useless commentary about the annoyances of riding public transportation in san francisco (laughs) among uh i collect misspelled signs Funny stuff my nephews told me. All the usual garbage that no one cares about. Punctuation errors. I seem to think people care about anyway. Yeah, exactly. So, there you go. Right. So, uh, yeah, barring some catastrophe, I guess we have to figure out the uh, New Year's episode situation. Yeah. Uh, I don't get it 2019. Or maybe 2018. uh, We're usually behind the curve. You know what we should do? I don't get it 2017. Yeah, we'll go back in time to the first year yeah, we launched exactly, the podcast. Exactly. So everybody has a uh, everybody mandatory. You must have a Merry Christmas because the culture the culture war uh, yeah. states as such. So it, it is mandatory, and we will you see you. We'll see you thereafter. A production of American Caesar Enterprises, twenty eighteen.